So we are going to be unpacking these verses. Um, we're going to be slowly unpacking the first few verses and then we're going to be picking up the pace later on through verses 31 to the end. So again, have your Bibles open um, so that you're, you're looking at God's Word and, and testing what I say to what's written in your Bibles. Anyway, good luck. Is there such a thing? We hear it all the time, don't we? Maybe you say it often. Good luck. But is there such a thing? Now, I know that when people say good luck, what we really mean is, you know, all the best. We hope things go well for you. We hope you get what you're after. So someone leaves for a holiday. Good luck to you. Someone goes to the doctor or to the hospital for surgery. Good luck to you. Hope you get the results you're after. Or an exam, a job interview. Good luck. That's what we mean, isn't it? But it's a bit strange, isn't it? It's a bit odd, really. I mean, think about uh, a sports carnival. Ten competitors all racing for the same uh, race. And, and, you know, we wish them all good luck. But at the end of the day, only one person can win, can't they? So you might watch the footy. I, I love footy. Before every game, you know, you've got the interviewer. He's interviewing all the coaches and the players. And after every interview, that interviewer always says, well, good luck to you. But only one coach is going to win at the end of the day. Only one team is going to win. Perhaps what's even more odd is that when you ask the winning team or the winning coach at the end of the game, they won't say it's good luck. In fact, they'll say, no, we put heaps of thinking, heaps of planning, heaps of exercising and training again and again. It's not luck. This is our effort. This is our skill. Well, perhaps the losing team might say, you know, they won by luck. But the winning team, they won't say it's good luck, will they? So is there such a thing as luck? Is luck the language that we should be using as Christians? God tells us in his word, doesn't he? That he is the one who stands behind all things. It's a huge part of, of the letter of Romans, especially this chapter in chapter 8. And, and even the chapter next, chapter 9. God predestines. Oh, dirty word, isn't it? God predestines. Look, I, I don't have to argue today uh, that that's what the Bible says. In the, in the verses we've read, it's there, isn't it? You see, the hard part, I think, is you and I believing it. It's easy to think that the world is pretty random. Our plot in life is like a, a roll of the dice. God is in the background. He's watching. And of course, God can intervene. We ask him to intervene at times. He's kind of like a SES worker, isn't he? He responds when we call. Predestination is something God has decided to tell us about. He doesn't tell us everything about himself. He doesn't tell us everything about his purposes and plans. 
but he tells us about predestination. He wants us believing it. It's for our good. It's for our assurance. Our assurance in what God himself has done. I'm not saying now that you have to fully comprehend it. Fully understand it with your, with your brains. But it's a truth God wants us believing. So let's try get our heads around it, just for a bit. Uh, we're going to do two things this morning. First of all, we're going to think about the, the truths that we should know. And then later on, more briefly, we're going to be asking some questions. So secondly, we'll, we'll think about the questions we should be asking. So truths we should know and questions we should ask. So let's start with the truths. If you look down at, your, at the text again, especially verse 30, you see pretty quickly there, there's a big list of truths. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. These are truths we should know. But let's just take a step back first. What is the main thing in all these lists of truths that Paul is giving us here? What is the main thing? Well, it's God, isn't it? He predestined. He called. He justified. He also glorified. Whatever these truths mean, they're things which God does for us. In fact, the things God has already done. Look, I'm terrible with grammar, but it's pretty clear, isn't it? All these words, these truths, are past tense. God's done them. Now, I know I'm not being really deeply profound here, I'm sorry, but it's crucial. This is crucial. I mean, when we think about verse 28, verse 28 is a much-loved, favourite verse of Christians, isn't it? God works for the good of those who love him. When we think about these verses, though, we can, we can make it more about us, can't we, than about God. It's about God, and it's about what he has already done for us. We can make this verse to be like our, our Christian good luck charm. So your exams, take this verse God works for your good. The surgery. Here, take this verse. God works for your good. Now, don't get me wrong. This verse, uh, it is meant to be a comfort for us. But the comfort is not us getting what we want. It's God getting what he wants. And what we want, what he wants, can be two very different things, can't it? When we make ourselves the main thing of this verse, I think this verse becomes quite shallow, empty and weak. Yet when we're able to grasp what it says about God and how it's mainly about Him, I think that's when we see the depths and the beauty of this verse. So this focus on God, maybe it is actually more profound than what I'm giving on. 
And we know that in all things, God, God works. God works for the good. God works for the good of those who love him. Who are the those? Look on. They are those who have been called according to his purpose. Well, let's spend some time unpacking this verse and the next couple of verses. Uh, so let's go to verse 28 again. And the good. Let's think about the good. Let's be clear about the good here. God is not at work for your comfort. He's not promising us here an easy, comfortable life. Happy days. He's not promising, promising us the results that we might have in mind. God is at work for your good. That is, for your progress, for your development, for your growing. If you, if you know Romans 8, the whole chapter... Paul is attempting to, to assure the church here, to, to assure those who are trusting Jesus by faith, that already now we are children of God, sons of God, no longer guilty, but, but spirit-filled, changed, changed to be like Christ. If you're in Christ, you're being made to be like Christ. So in this life, how should we be progressing? To be more like Christ. Increasingly godly, increasingly holy, like true children of God. That's how God is at work in his people. That's the good God is determined to bring about in his people. Now going back to verse 28 again, notice there the extent to which God works for us. Paul says, in all things. You see, there is not one thing that happens that's going on which is outside of God's purposes to bring about his good for those who've been adopted into his family. Our reformed favourite, R.C. Sproul, he puts it this way. There is not a molecule running around the whole universe that is outside the control of God. He is working in it all for the good of his people. So your hay fever, your cancer, your depression, your colds and your flus. God is at work in all the unseeable bugs that are entering us. Your singleness, your marriage, your children, your miscarriages, your intellectual abilities or your disabilities. God is at work in it all. Good days and bad days. In recovery and in mess up. When things are working and when things don't go to plan. 
when others are getting it right and when others are messing it all up. In all things, God is at work for the good of his people. But there's a catch. In all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. If this verse is meant to comfort us, this is the bit that should slightly disturb us. This verse is for those who love him. Just think about that for a minute. Our love for God. It's quite small, isn't it? And puny and lousy. I mean, who of us could stand before God today and say to him, you know what, God? I loved you pretty well, didn't I? Our love isn't perfect. But look on. We haven't hit the full stop yet. God works in all things for the good of those who love him, that is, those who have been called according to his purpose. You see, our love for God, yes, it's real. Imperfect, yes. It's there. But again, who is it that stands behind even our love? Our puny, tiny, weak love. Who stands behind that? It's God. You see, it's not actually about our love, is it? It's about God choosing us. It's about God calling us. It's about God loving us. God's working for us isn't determined by our love. How great or small that might be is determined by his choosing. And this is where it gets difficult for us, I think. Because, you see, I think that this is the kind of control that we want. We are the ones that want to make the decisions. That's what makes us human, isn't it? It's what, we, it's what we, we often think gives us meaning in life. Uh, worth. Being in control. Me determining. Me choosing my own destiny. Let me ask you a question. How has that gone for mankind? Making their own choices. How did it go for Adam and Eve? How did it go for Cain, for Abraham? How did it go for all the Israelites? How did it go for David, Solomon? How did it go for Jesus' own disciples? How has it gone for any human being? Before we ever knew God, before we ever loved him, God had already put his thinking to pen and paper. He wants us, that is, us who are choosing to love him, he wants us to know that before all time, before we loved him or not, he had already decided to intervene 
by loving us. God chose to love us. And this is a truth which Paul spells out before that list of truths in verse 30, in in verses 28 and 29, Paul spells out that God chose to love us. Let's read verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God foreknew. So, before God put salvation into place, he loved. He loved you before he made you. That's the truth of Psalm 139 as well, isn't it? And this knowing is is intimate language here. In the Hebrew, knowing is not just a concept. It's not just an intellectual uh, understanding. Knowing is the deepest of intimate relationship. And it's deliberate. So before time itself, God very deliberately chose to know us. Know us deeply and intimately. Think about it. You and I, we can love people, can't we? We can love people who are pretty or handsome, nice people, the lovely people. Perhaps we can even choose to love them before we meet them. You know, our friends talk about them and tell us all the good stuff about them and we can have a pretty good idea that, yeah, we, we can love those kind of people. But here is God loving the unlovable and choosing to do that before time itself. God foreknew. He also predestined. That is, God decides where we finish. So God will get us home with Christ in glory, but God will get us with Christ in in character too. Remember, that's the good God does for us. And the point here is not to make us proud or arrogant or even lazy. The point here is to humble us and to comfort us and to stir us on on, on going on to, to trusting Jesus and obeying him. Chapter 8 again. The whole chapter is about suffering and pain and difficulty and the assurance which Christians have in all that. Predestination is not meant to make the pain worse. It's a truth which comforts us in the pain. It's a truth which assures us in the suffering. You see, God doesn't drive a train into the world calling out, who would like to come on? No, God, he drives a train into the world and he picks up spiritually dead people and he puts them on. That's how God predestines. God does what he plans. So he's not like the CS, the SES worker, the, F, the CFA, the country, the fire people, whatever. They wait to be called out, don't they? God's not passive. He initiates. He does what he plans. He loves his people before the world. 
He plans our destiny and he brings it to his desired purposes. You see, the humbling and most bestest, sorry about my grammar again, thing about salvation is it always is traced back to the mercy of God. A mercy which was before time. A mercy that was made known at the cross. A mercy that we received even when we were spiritually dead. While we were enemies, God was merciful. Does predestination make us passive? Lazy? Or even arrogant? Not if we understand it right. The truth about predestination should make us even more dependent on God and his mercy. More prayerful, more hopeful, more joyful, more willing and even more courageous in our stance for Christ. So verse 28, God loved us. Verse 29 and 30, God predestined us. And now verse 30 again, God called us. We're going through that list uh, that we touched on before. He has called us his people. Sometimes you and I, we might call someone to follow Christ, might we? And they don't. We could scream it out loud in the sound system in the middle of town, couldn't we? Follow Christ! Come, follow! And they won't. We don't have the power. God calls and people follow. His call is supernatural. His call is internal. His call is effectual. It brings about God's desired plan. So in John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me, that will come to me. And if you think that makes us robots, well, Jesus goes on to say straight away, Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Next, those God has called, he is also justified. This truth means that we who, who love Christ and trust him, we really do, right now, stand before God faultless. He has already taken a, sorry, he has already given us, he's made his judgment. And he's declared us not guilty. That's our verdict. It's been and done. The verdict is said, you are not guilty. Because Jesus has taken away the guilt. He paid the guilty verdict and his punishment. Justification, a big strange word. But it's the opposite of condemnation. See, instead of condemnation... In Christ, we get justification. And this is great, because no matter how your day is going, whether you wake up in a bad mood or in a good mood, God sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's how he sees us, who are trusting Christ. It's like, even before you sit your exam, your teacher comes and whispers to you in your ear, you're already through. Well, here's God telling us, 
us who love his son, you're already through. The last truth here is that God has also glorified his people. Now, do you see it there? He doesn't say he will glorify us. He says he glorified us. God has so wonderfully planned the progress of his children. It is as if it's already done. It's as good as done. He will finish the plan. And nobody who loves and trusts and follows Jesus will ever drop out. So there are the truths that God wants us believing and enjoying. If it's these truths which give us the assurance, even now. And it's these truths that give us comfort all the way through. We are so hugely privileged, aren't we? To know that God is working behind the scenes and in all his people. God is working absolutely everything for his people, for their progress, for good. Now, of course, there's questions. Some questions are good and helpful questions and some questions are just unhelpful. How do we work it out? Well, I don't know. So I'm going to trust Paul here and I'm going to trust that his questions here from verses 31 to the end are the helpful questions that you and I should be asking. Now, if you look there, there's five questions. So let's go through each of them. Uh, We'll go quite quickly. So here are the questions we should ask. First of all, from verse uh, 31, Paul asks the questions. In light of all these truths, who could be against us? There are plenty of things we could say, couldn't there, that go against us. Or even are right now going against us. There are problems, there are sufferings, there's sadness, there's people who are against us, friends who go against us, our enemies are against us, evil, angelic beings may be against us. The devil is against us. But notice the question again. If God is for us, literally, if God is on behalf of us, who could be against us? If you ever really doubt that God is for you, it may be because you're not taking his word seriously and we keep thinking about ourselves. God says he is for you. We may not know exactly what our Heavenly Father is doing. But we can know He is for us. Whatever you're experiencing, it doesn't stop Him being for us. Second question. Who can improve on the love of God? Verse 32. If God has given His number one gift to His people, and there is no greater gift, is there? No greater treasure than his gift of his own son. If God gave us his son, what more could God give? How can God improve his love? He gave his son for us all. He gave him up. And he gives us exactly what we need. The all things here is not what we want. 
but what we need. And through Christ, what do we get? We get forgiveness. We get access to God. We get new life, eternal life. We, we get God's favor. We get God as our Father forever. You can't improve it, can you? You can't find better than God's gift of His only Son. Third question. Who will bring a charge against us? Verse 33. Now, if you knew me well, you could bring all sorts of charges against me. People bring charges against Jesus, don't they? Even against the apostles. All you have to do is become a prime minister today and you'll get plenty of people bringing all sorts of charges against you. Charges come from all kinds of people, don't they? They come from the devil himself. But you see, these charges can no longer harm us. Because God has said, what has he said? He has said justified. Now someone says, I'm not sure who it is, nothing is worse than an insecure Christian. You see, an insecure Christian will go everywhere for security except Christ. And that's going to dishonor Christ. And it's going to sap the fellowship of trying to make sure that this needy person is supported. The insecure Christian is going to be utterly self-preoccupied, restlessly searching for what only Christ can give. Paul says, Who will bring a charge against us? Nobody can bring a serious charge against us. Well, not one charge anyway that's going to change our prospect or our future in Christ. Question four, who will condemn us? Verse 34. Again, it's one thing to yell out a charge at someone, but who can actually yell out a condemnation? Who can do the condemning? Who can take God's place and, and announce condemned on someone? Who can say that when God has already said and announced justified? Nobody can say condemned. And again, let me remind you, this verse doesn't just apply to the Christian elite, to the uh, well-trained Christian, the well-disciplined Christian, the the theologically sound schooled Christian. God saved us all in our rebellion. While we were enemies. God chose us when we were sinners. When we were hopeless and helpless. God chose us when he knew what life would be like after you were saved. So don't wait to be perfect before you rejoice. And as you do rejoice... Rejoice in the grace of God. Don't rejoice in your ability to follow. Don't rejoice in the success of your following of Jesus. Rejoice in the grace and in the favour and in the mercy of God. Final question. Verse 35. Who will separate us? There are heaps of things that can possibly separate us. And Paul makes a big list here, doesn't he? He speaks of, I think, seven possibilities But the point here 
at the end is this. Paul's pretty much saying, you go and choose any power that you can think of or come up with within the whole universe, whether it's got to do with uh, time or space or spiritual or physical. And Paul is saying, it cannot separate you from the love of Christ. The grip of God on his people is infinitely greater than the biggest power that we can come up with in our brains. God's grip on us is now inseparable. In Cobden, once a month I visit elderly people at a nursing home there. And some there have been Christians all their life. And now they're losing their memories. Nothing will separate them from the love of Christ. You might know someone. They know all the Bible verses. They knew all the hymns, all the memories about Christ and the gospel, all the abilities. Gone. Yet here we have reminded, nothing, nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. And you see, this is the case because it's God's grip on us. Not our grip on him. We keep letting go, don't we? He holds on. God's grip on us is what makes fellowship with God inseparable. That's really profound, isn't it? That's a really wonderful thing. That's the wonderful thing of Romans chapter 8. You can go read Thessalonians. You can go read Titus. And these books are great books and they urge us and stir us to keep on going and pressing on. But here, Romans 8, Paul is saying, God will keep you going. Look at his plan. It goes from eternity to eternity. Look at his love. It's deep, it's wide, it's high, it's long, it's massive. And if you really want to have a joyful Christian life, look at Christ. I mean, think about it. Over 2,000 years ago, Good Friday, there was Jesus calling out, finished, paid, forgiven. Look at Christ and rejoice. We have one great security in life. And that's Christ's loving grip on his people. So is there such a thing as good luck? No. The one who stands behind all things tells us, don't rest your life on luck. Rest it in God's love. Good luck is our way, isn't it? Of saying, I hope you get what you're after, what you want. But do we really want people getting what they want? No, we want them getting what God wants, only what God can give them. And it's not luck, it's never luck. It's love. It's God's love. See, predestination 
is a far better alternative, isn't it, to luck? Because there is no love like God's love. He doesn't want to give us what we want. He gives us what He wants. And He gives us Christ. It's a good thing, isn't it? That God gets what He wants. He has loved us. He has called us. He has predestined us. He has justified us. He has glorified us. Good luck is our best attempt of doing all that ourselves. Predestination is not just God's attempt, but as God has already told us, it is the way He has already worked. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just thank you so much for your word, for these truths which we've only touched on briefly. Father, we ask that you would capture our minds increasingly so with these truths, that we will be filled with wonder and, and, and awe and speculation and, and increasing joy in these things which you have done and less about the things that we have done or that we want to do. Lord, I again pray that you would not let us leave from here being confused. But Lord, would we be absolutely clear that salvation is a gift that you give us through Jesus Christ. In him alone, there is nothing we can do or say that can change what you have done in Jesus Christ. And so for us who are trusting him, we praise you, God, because that means we're forgiven. It means we are now your children. We belong to you now and forever. Please help us believe, to keep on believing, and help us to keep enjoying these wonderful truths about you. Father, help us to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. For we ask it in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.